Let's pray. Father God, we are only sent out because you first sent your Son into this world that he would live a perfect and righteous life in the fullness of his humanity and that he would die too for us sinners so that we might become the very righteousness of God so that he would bear our sin. Father, so that we might be washed and cleaned by the word and by the blood of the Lamb. And as we hear and share this morning in these things of the conscience and how to love one another in matters of the conscience, Father, we pray that you would speak to us, grant to us the wisdom of your spirit, not just this morning but in the areas of life where uh, these verses apply. And Father, that in our freedom uh, we would not be selfish but love one another and not destroy your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we get uh, started in Romans 14, a passage for us today, a little recap because all of this links together. Last week particularly we're told everyone is to be subject to the governing authorities uh, because they've been instituted by God and they are servants of God. And last week we also saw how those who are no longer under the law, we're now under grace, aren't we, in Christ? Uh, But the law still has its place, it's good, it's holy, and it informs the way we are to love. Love is actually the fulfilling of the law. And then in the last section last week we saw how we are to live in the light, to put off any works of darkness and walk properly, not giving any um, opportunity for the... uh, desires of the flesh because we know what time it is the hours come salvation is drawing near and nearer to us now than when we first believed so let's not waste the time we have in deeds of darkness giving sin and evil any more opportunity than they already have in our lives so the law informs the way we love love is the fulfilling of the law But what about when the law is not so clear? What about when the Lord's will is not as black and white as we might like it to be and there's some shades of grey? It's not about living in light or darkness. There seems to be a bit of dawn and dusk uh, in between. How do we go about making decisions when it comes to matters of the conscience? When the law doesn't explicitly teach us or inform us how we are to love, how we are to walk, what should inform us? What should instruct us? Another way of putting that question in light of Romans 14 that we've heard read is in the freedom that we've been given as sinners, we're now free in Christ, aren't we? We're now justified by grace. What are the boundaries, if any, of our freedom? Does our freedom have boundaries? Some would like to think not. Surely if there's boundaries then that restricts freedom. Not necessarily the case. Or perhaps another way, if the law informs or instructs us how to love, what informs our freedom? And I want to put it to us this morning in Romans 14 that Paul teaches us that our love for one another is actually what informs our freedom. Our love for one another informs how we exercise our freedom and the boundaries of that freedom. 
we're freed from the guilt of sin, freed from the fear of condemnation, freed from the wrath of God. We now have a guilt-free conscience washed in the blood of Christ. That does not mean we are free to do anything we please. It means we're free to love. True freedom is not being able to do as we choose, living life without any boundaries. Instead, true freedom is being free to choose for the sake of another person. True freedom is being free to choose for the sake of another person. After all, verse 7 to 9, no one lives to himself, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. We're not our own masters. So let's look at the passage and see what it has to say. And um, if we get some time at the end, we might even have some time for discussion. We'll see what we get, how far we get. Let me just reread a few verses from verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, we'll get to what that means in a moment, welcome him or her, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now we could get caught up on what it means to be weak in faith and have a look around us and say, oh, am I a strong one or a weak one and and think that there's actually a hierarchy. It's not about that. Straight, It's not about passing judgment, is it? So let's not look down because that's the very thing Paul's telling us not to do or even think ourselves up if we think we are strong. Um, But the weak are those who eat vegetables. Well, sort of. It's not because they only eat vegetables that they're weak. It's the weakness in faith Paul's talking about. And it's most likely, and almost 100%, that they're choosing, and Paul calls them weak in faith, because they're choosing not to eat meat in case it's been offered to idols. That's the background here. Or it's been slaughtered in a certain way. It's kosher. Um, And in the day, most meat that was bought at the markets was in some way most likely associated with sacrifices to idols. It was very difficult to work out whether it was or it wasn't. They didn't have the little sticky labels we have today saying 80% made in Australia or this has been this is kosher or halal or gluten-free. They didn't have little stickers on their food. Chances are if you bought a slab of meat from the marketplace, it was had some way, some association with sacrifice to idols. And so those who are weak in faith, the way Paul describes them here, didn't want to ignore that possibility. They didn't want to even have have any association with anything that might be unclean, not because the meat's unclean, but because what it does if you eat meat that's unclean is it would make them spiritually unclean. It was about their own spiritual condition before God. In keeping with Romans 12, the very beginning of this section, they wanted to be able to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And if they ate something that was unclean, they were worried that it might not be, their, their own bodies would not be holy and acceptable to God. Why? Because that was what the Old Testament law said. If you ate something that was unclean, you would be unclean. You would not be fit to enter into the tabernacle or the temple and worship God. 
Now, you might say, but hang on, this is New Testament. That's all Old Testament. That's all finished with. Now, we might be able to say that really clearly, but in Paul's day, it wasn't always quite as clear. And in the early church, it took them quite a while to actually work out what they could and could not do in their freedom in Christ. Can you remember Acts 15 or the book of Galatians and the Jerusalem Council? The main issue was circumcision. Gentiles, they've been accepted into the church, into the family of God. But should they become fully Jew? Should they be circumcised? What are they allowed to eat? What are they allowed to do? And the Jews were still trying to work out how much of our old tradition, our old faith, this is a continuity of that. How much of that do we take with us? And in Acts 15, what did they work out? Yeah, they say, no, 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 it's all okay, it's all finished. But it's actually not the instruction they gave. They actually said, let me find the right verses. My judgment, this is, um, who's speaking here, Peter? Uh, that's not the right one, yes it is. Um, is it Peter? I think it is. Barnabas and Paul are there. Simeon? Yeah, Peter, Simon Peter. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, this is the instruction from the early church to the Gentiles, to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from being sexually immoral, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. So they've got a letter from the apostles in Jerusalem saying, don't eat food offered to idols. Now we've got a situation a decade or so later trying to work out, what well, can we eat this food or not? Okay, Things have developed a little bit, particularly in Paul's mind, but what he's saying here, in one sense, contradicts what was there in the Jerusalem Council. Things have progressed. Paul's saying everything's clean, and yet there's still this instruction, stay away from meat offered to idols. So that's the context here. It's not quite as clean cut as we might think it is. But it also makes it interesting as we try to apply this to modern day issues of the conscience because most of the time we are not dealing with things that are related to Old Testament law. Okay? If we talk about drinking alcohol, for example, it's not an Old Testament law, New Testament in Christ situation. It's a different matter of the conscience. There's still principles we can apply, but it's not exactly the same. It doesn't make us unclean in that sense. Things like circumcision, sexual immorality, the things they were told to, okay, do away with that, that was really easy, wasn't it? Nice and clear cut, excuse the pun. But eating food off the idols wasn't so obvious. They couldn't work that, out, that one out so black and white. And it's worth noting here, Paul doesn't commend the strong for their strong faith. He never says, good on you, you're doing the right thing. He actually says, don't put down the weak. In fact, welcome them. Okay? The closest he gets to commending them is in verse 22, where he does say, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Okay? And Paul does say he believes everything is clean in Christ. But he never actually says, good on you for being strong and make the weak feel inferior. He's not doing that. He's saying, welcome them. Nor should the weak, who are not eating meat, pass judgment on those who are eating meat. Why not? What's the underlying principle? Because it's not to one another that we give account. It's to God. He's our master. We serve him. And then there's actually this wonderful promise. In all this instruction, there's a wonderful promise for the one who is weak and is not sure in their conscience whether they can or can't eat this or drink that. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, 
and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. There's one little promise in the midst of this great chapter. Really wonderful for us to remember. If I'm not sure, if I'm a bit wobbly on this, look to the Lord. He'll help you stand. He'll enable you to stand. So the first instruction here is not to pass judgment, not to look up or look down on one another, but to welcome one another in the Lord. Because that's what the Lord does. Weak or strong, whether you've got doubts in your mind and conscience about what you can do or not, welcome one another in the Lord. It's the first thing Paul's saying. But he goes on, even with that promise there that he's able to make us stand, he goes on to say that we should be sure, we should be fully convinced in our own minds why we do what we do or not do what we do, why we eat, why we don't eat, why we drink, why we don't drink. We should be fully convinced. When my girls were in primary school, uh, the school they went to had adopted the, uh, the IB curriculum, the International Baccalaureate, and um, they had, a, I think it was a dozen or so words that many classrooms had. It was all about the student's character. Rather than reports just being you got an A or a B or a C for maths and a little bit for effort, they had comments about different character traits for the students. And they'd get a sort of green box or something if you were principled or diligent or kind and all these other things. And principled was one that stuck out to me. That is, they acted... They spoke, they acted in a way that was consistent with a certain standard, with a principle. They'd thought it through and they were principled in their decision-making and in their actions. That's what Paul's talking about here. Be fully convinced. If you're going to act in a certain way, be principled about it. Not just say, oh, I'm free, I can do what I like. No, give it some thought and be fully convinced. Be confident in your own mind that you are free to do that. Now, admittedly, if you're principled, you could have poor principles and act consistently, couldn't you? But that's not what Paul's talking about here, nor was it really what was happening in the school reports for my girls. Paul is telling us here to be sure to have some standard, some informed view from Scripture, from Christ, by which we consider our actions and then live accordingly. One person esteems one day is better than another, verse 5, while another esteems all days alike. Paul's not saying one's better than the other. He says, each one, whichever side you take, be fully convinced in your own mind. The one who observes the day, observes in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord. Whatever you do, be fully convinced and do it in honour of the Lord. Not for your own pleasure, not for your own comfort, not for your own righteousness, but to honour God. And as we're going to see, to love your fellow brother or sister in Christ. Back in the earlier days of COVID, I don't know if you picked up what was going on around the world and we only get what the media tells us, um, but a pastor in America, John MacArthur, very well-known pastor, very large church, popular evangelical reformed large church pastor in California. During um, lockdowns in the state of California, he decided to go against the law of the state and open his church. And he cited things like, I will render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Yes, the state can have certain things to do with our health and tell us to do this and this, but God has told us we are to meet together regularly and so that is what we are going to do. Now, he and his church leaders were willing to take whatever consequences came his way from the civil law keepers because of their actions against that law but they felt in that case that they should obey God and not man 
suggesting that the law in place went against the word of God, which told them to meet regularly. Now, that may seem, on first look, to go against what we heard last week. Hang on, be subject to governing authorities. They were doing the exact opposite. Part of their argument, though, was, well, hang on, all the casinos are open, which they were. Why can't churches be open? So they, they saw an inconsistency there. I think it's a fair question to ask. But I also wonder if applying the principle of rendering to Caesar and to God what is theirs, in doing that they may have ignored Romans 13 as well. But what they made clear, and I hope I'm giving a fair account in a rather simplistic way, what they made clear was in their decision making they were still willing to bear the consequences of their actions from the law. So in that way, even though they were breaking the law, they were willing to submit themselves to the governing authorities. You can do both. You shouldn't do it brazenly. It has to be fully convinced. But they were willing to, they say, no, I don't believe this law is right under God, but we're still willing to submit ourselves to the governing authorities because we'll take whatever consequences they dish out for us. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean you can go and speed on the road. Well, you could and say, that's okay, I'm, not, I'm breaking the law, but uh, I'm going to subject myself to the governing authorities by taking the fine. That'd be silly, wouldn't it? And there are ways we need to be fully convinced in our own minds and wise in that. According to Romans 14, it's not for me to judge John MacArthur or his church or his leaders, but I can still have my own opinion and I should still be fully convinced myself what I would do. Each of his congregation members should have been fully convinced themselves powerful, influential pastor, he's got a lot resting on his shoulders, I think, there, because people look up to him. Um, So that adds some weight to the matter for John MacArthur. But he and his leaders, together with anyone who went to church in that time, should have been fully convinced of what they were doing, according to this chapter. We are to be fully convinced whether we're to eat or drink or whatever we do, which days we keep as uh, sacred. How is it, though, in that context, how is it that good, godly and biblically astute people can be fully convinced but in different ways? I can be fully convinced it's okay to eat this and someone else might be fully convinced it's not. Well, quite easily. There's a number of matters and areas of life where good scholars and godly men and women come to different conclusions. I'm sure you'd be aware of a few. Sometimes it's a matter of deciding which hill are you going to die on? Are you really going to push this issue? Are you going to fight and stand strong? Other times it's a matter of recognising you're not going to change the growing tide of culture and therefore you don't have to stand and die on that hill but fully convinced in your own mind you're still going to stick to your own guns. And depending on our responsibilities, we may have a responsibility to inform others and say, hang on, I don't think that's right what's going on there. Don't get caught up in that. But what we need to be doing in all of that is making sure we're honouring God, not just having our own way choosing what's easiest or gets us the most media coverage or whatever. Definitely what we're to do is not act against our conscience and don't let others cause you to act against your own conscience. If we eat, if we abstain, if we live or we die, we do it to the Lord because we are his. That's our only hope and comfort in life and death, isn't it? That we are not our own but belong body, mind and soul to God in life and death. None of us lives to him or herself. And when we understand that fully, that we're not our own, 
The freedom that we've been, that's been bought for us in Christ makes us gods. It actually helps us recognise how petty and pointless it is really to pass judgement on one another in these matters and how important it is to be principled in these matters. Am I honouring God in my freedom? Am I fully convinced that I'm honouring God with what I'm doing? Because, a couple of times he says, we're going to have to give account before the Lord. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So again, we're not to pass judgment on on matters on one another on matters of conscience. We're to welcome one another, because it's God who is our master, and we stand before Him, not each other. And we we should all have reason. We should be fully convinced of whatever position we take in such matters. But there's more. It's not enough simply to be convinced in your own freedom or not, and therefore to go ahead with our own convictions. Paul adds another qualification, another informing instruction to the mixed so that our principled character and decision-making is grounded in something more, something other than our own conscience. What is it Paul says here? What's this added instruction to inform our conscience and our conduct? It's love. Love for our brother and sister is to be the deciding factor in matters of conscience. We might feel that we are free, fully convinced in our own minds to go about a certain action, but what Paul is now adding is that we need to ensure that we are not putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another person, another brother or sister in Christ. In our righteousness in Christ, in our justification, in our freedom, we are to live and conduct ourselves not simply in line with our own conscience, and convictions, but in accordance with the conscience of our weaker brother and sister. And doing this is, in fact, Paul says, serves Christ. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. It's the way of the kingdom here on earth. We pray it, don't we? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Loving and serving one another is the way of the kingdom not serving ourselves, but putting others before ourselves. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, our greater freedom and our stronger faith is actually the freedom and faith to serve Christ by not doing what we're free to do by not doing what we're free to do in order to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me say that again. The greater freedom and stronger faith is the freedom and faith to serve Christ by not doing what we are free to do for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ. Our pursuit of freedom, the exercise of our freedom in Christ, is not in order to please ourselves or to ignore the chains that others who are not as free as us. Instead, our freedom is to be pursued and exercised in order to make for peace and mutual upbuilding, not for self-gratification or limitless licence, do as we please, but for building up others and not destroying the work of God, not destroying, strong word, isn't it, our brother or sister? We'll have a look at that in a moment. 
Now, I don't think this means that we are for, forever to live and are bound to the lowest common denominator when it comes to the weak and the strong in faith with matters of conscience. There is a place for teaching and informing the conscience of one another so that those who may be weak in faith and are not sure, they can be taught in God's word and say, you are clean. There's a place for that. But if you're out in public, that's not the place to be saying, well, hey, I can eat and drink, you should eat and drink as well and be merry because we're all clean. Because you're actually going to cause that person to be put under pressure and perhaps act against their conscience. And that's what Paul talks about when he's saying destroying the work of God. God just washed their conscience clean. And you're going to put them under guilt in their own conscience because they're not sure if you cause them to act against it before they're fully convinced in their own mind. Does that make sense? I think that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's instructing us. He says, I'm convinced everything is clean. So here's the teaching and informing. But then there's the pastoral situation where not everyone's come to that conclusion yet. And so we're to live in accordance with the weaker brother and sister. So despite making it clear, he says twice, verse 14 and verse 20, that everything is indeed clean, nothing's unclean, if you don't see it as that, it is unclean if someone considers it unclean. Paul makes it clear that it's wrong to eat if it causes our brother or sister to stumble. And as I said, what he means there, I think, is if it causes another's conscience to be questioned. Which ultimately, if you constantly live under questioning your own conscience and under guilt and doubt of whether you are free in Christ, what's that going to do to you? You're going to end up questioning your own salvation. You're, not, you're going to forget, if you look at 1 Peter, you're going to forget, or 2 Peter, uh, the forgiveness you've received in God and think it's all about your actions again. You need to be restored in the Gospel. I think that's what Paul means by destroying the work of God. Don't let your actions put a weaker brother or sister in Christ in chains again, in bondage to slavery of the law and of a guilty conscience, under the burden of a guilty conscience. My faith, my freedom, my convictions, I actually am to keep between myself and God with a clear conscience and not give myself any reason to pass judgment on myself. Wonderful. If you know you're perfectly free and clean in Christ, excellent. Praise the Lord for that. Be clear about that within your own heart and mind and conscience, not ignorantly, not arrogantly, but informed by Scripture, by the Gospel, by the Spirit, not with any doubts because whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Now that's a verse or part of a verse that we tend to throw around quite freely, isn't it? But it actually comes in the context of this chapter. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Not because the action necessarily is a sin against the law of God, but because it acts against your own conscience and therefore carries with it the weight of guilt attached to our conscience. Because if we're not trusting God, then we're trusting something else. That's why anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. It's interesting, earlier in Romans, Paul talks about Abraham who did not weaken in faith, similar words, weak and strong faith, but was fully convinced, wasn't he? Faith which pleases God. We do need to be careful, as I said earlier, how we apply these things to life today. 
because we don't have too many hangovers from the Old Testament law of ceremonial purification, do we? They don't tend to contend with our culture too much, but we do still have principles of the conscience and ways that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and stand before God. Things which I think we need to apply in life. This is serious stuff Paul's talking about here when he talks about things like stumbling, condemned, destroying the work of God or even destroying our brother. He's not just talking about offending someone else. He's concerned for their eternal welfare here. Don't let your freedom put your brother or sister's eternal welfare in question. That adds some weight to the matter, doesn't it? He's aware that any continuous pressure of guilt and doubt in a person's conscience can destroy the work of God. Now, whatever theology you might have of assurance and the perseverance of the saints, the warning from Paul here is real enough. He's not entering into that debate here. He is saying, in your actions, think about your brother and sister more than your own freedom. And he is implying, I think, that we have enough in the word and by the spirit and the wisdom of one another to be sure that we can be convinced in our own minds. Enough to have a principled decision, even if we're not sure of right and wrong in some grey areas. If we're not sure, then don't go against your conscience. I think that's what he's telling us. We should be able to tell the difference of what is loving and what isn't, at a minimum, of what goes against our own conscience and what doesn't. Remember, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before our own master that he stands or falls. And the Lord will make him stand. He's able to. Next week we'll see in chapter 15, we who are strong, he now addresses the strong for a moment, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We're to carry them through and not use our freedom for our own enjoyment but to teach, encourage and build them up, to bear with their failings. So in conclusion, shorter study today, isn't it? We've been justified freely in Christ by grace. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. As God's children, under grace, we're called to love one another. The law informs our love, and love fulfills the law. And in our freedom and love, we are to be sure, we are to be fully convinced of what that freedom means for us, and we're to honour God in all we do. And ultimately what that freedom means for us is that we are free to love and serve one another in our fellowship with one another, particularly here for Paul when it comes to meals. We can have a chat in a minute about what it means for us today. We're to conduct ourselves and exercise our freedom in Christ in love with the faith, conscience and convictions or not of our brothers and sisters in Christ in mind. In short, as we've been hearing in these past few weeks, the Christian faith and life is more concerned with others than with ourselves. The strong in faith are in fact called to relinquish their rights, so to speak, for the sake of their fellow, perhaps weaker, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul's calling us to here when it comes to matters of the conscience. 
And like I said, it's a shorter study, but I wonder, because of the nature of it, are there any questions or situations you found yourself in where this would apply? You might have questions about. Let me pray. Father God, just how vast and how deep and wide has been the work and the love of Christ in the shedding of his blood. That he would wash us clean, not just on the outside, but all the way through to our innermost heart. That we would have a new heart. And therefore, Father, we, by your grace, can stand before you holy and acceptable in your Son. What an amazing gift. And yet, as we've heard today, Father, there's still areas in life where some of us will have doubts or people around us might have doubts too about what is right and wrong to do. We pray, Father, you'd give us a hunger for your word that we would read and learn and inform our minds and consciences that we would be fully convinced that in all our actions, in all our thoughts, that we would be honouring you and that we would be loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just fully convinced of our own freedom, Father, but fully convinced that we're serving others in the exercise of that freedom and building one another up. We pray for those of us here where there are situations to work out church services, times, music, eating and drinking. Help us, Father, by your Spirit to love one another, to walk in wisdom, to walk in love, to listen to one another, to learn from one another and understand from each other, but also where the time is right to be able to teach and inform others too and to build one another up in the truth of Christ and the glorious freedom of your children that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.